This podcast is intended for an adult audience. Please be aware that some of the content discussed may be triggering. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Reach Out, the podcast, where we are dedicated to ending sexual violence through advocacy, counseling, education, and more. This is the official podcast of Reach Counseling, located in Northeast Wisconsin. You will learn more about the services we provide and hear from members of our team, sexual assault survivors, and the people who support them. We are so glad you're joining us today and would love to connect with you further. You can find out more about us by going to reachcounseling.com. The interview portion of this episode was recorded in May of 2023. Please keep this in mind when dates and timelines are referenced. This week's episode features an interview with Noelle Fenwick, Associate Director of REACH Counseling. Noelle shares about her journey serving in multiple capacities at REACH throughout the years. She also talks about the problem with historical anti-Blackness in the nonprofit world. Here's episode six. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I would love to hear a little bit about how you became involved in REACH because you have had quite the journey with REACH. How has that journey been for you? Where where did it start? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I was looking back just recently, actually, and while I'm technically coming up on three years as a full-time employee this summer, I've actually been with REACH for about five years now, and I started as a volunteer advocate when I was a junior in college. And so I was just really excited about sexual violence prevention and response, like really riled up about it on campus. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, the director of the Women's Center at UW Oshkosh at the time had connected me with the volunteer coordinator here at the time. So I started as a volunteer, responding to the off hours, same calls, providing support and advocacy that way. I ended up in an unconventional way helping out Reach by being a nanny for that volunteer coordinator at one point. Oh, okay. Yep. And then, so I was the first to know when she was moving on to a different uh, organization, different nonprofit, and invited me to apply for her role. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So my first full-time position was volunteer coordinator, youth and teen advocate, and prevention educator, which wow. in hindsight was not a good idea <laughs> to, put, <laughs> to put three titles under one person. But we were really small at that time. I think there was like 14 of us in total across all four programs. So we did what we could at that time. But couple months into that and we really realized that one direct service is probably not my end-all be-all like I thought it would be and two we probably shouldn't put that many titles on one person so I moved into development and marketing in March of 2021 and that was just very serendipitous of a lot of things our executive director takes people out to coffee around quarterly to say you know what's going well with your job what could go better and I had no intention of telling her that I was not loving what I was doing, but it just kind of came out <laughs> in that meeting. And it was a little bit panicked of, you know, this is my dream career, or so I thought, but I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, but I do have so much passion for this mission. And so we had a really long, great conversation. I think we both left with goosebumps on our arms mm. because she was really looking for a grant writer at that time. And I was saying how the one thing that I like to do to decompress is to read and to write. And so very serendipitously, I ended up 
moving into that grant writing role, which has then since snowballed into donor stewardship more broadly and new this year event planning as well is going to be under my belt. Um, So it's been a wild ride for sure, especially moving into associate director starting the end of last year. Mm -hmm. But Kristen has been such an amazing mentor and helped me better understand nonprofit management because it's something I never saw myself in. I always thought it would be advocate and then later therapist in my life. But I am I'm very happy with the winding road I took to get here. Yeah. And I think that's really inspiring for college students to hear about. Like if there's something you're passionate about and you get involved and you're volunteering, like who knows what doors that can open for you. Some people might say you're too young to be an associate director of a nonprofit, <laughs> right? I want to ask you, how do you handle do you ever get like imposter syndrome being a younger associate director and like, I mean, because you're very good at what you do, yeah. but I, I know like when I was in my twenties, mm-hmm. I struggled with imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. how do you deal with that? Yeah. All day, every day, I would say, <laughs> but it's something that I've had to prepare for, for even before this role. Like I remember my first volunteer call, mm. I got called to the hospital and the survivor asked me, are you old enough to be in this room? Like she didn't think I was an adult, let alone like qualified enough. And I was just in such shock and I was so nervous already because it was my first call that, I mean, I didn't tell her my age. I was like, I promise I am old enough. You want to see my driver's license? Like I... So yeah, absolutely. It's definitely something I've had to deal with for a long time throughout different roles, even, even as a volunteer advocate, as a victim advocate even if people don't say it, their eyes kind of say it. Mm. Um, oh, what could you really know about this? <laughs> right, right, right. And so definitely now as an associate director, I can definitely see that in other director spaces, working with some donors sometimes. I can just see it in their eyes. They don't say it, but I can see it. Maybe it's part imposter syndrome, but I, I do see that there's some that are like, well, tell us about how you got where you are. Yeah. Essentially saying, what are what are your qualifications to so get like, here? Well, I am homegrown. Yes. Like starting- yes. Well, honestly, I credit all of the skills I've gotten in terms of nonprofit management and grant writing and the technical sides of all these things. I mean, I knew the mission stuff. I knew that well. It's something I've been passionate about even pre-college. I remember giving a presentation when I was 16 on campus rape culture, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have the technical skills Mm -hmm. that comes with grant writing, that comes with donor stewardship, that comes with, I mean... Now I've got uh, strategic planning and um, job description writing and interviewing under my belt as well. And that that's all thanks to Kristen, for sure. Yeah. And so that's just a, a side note message to all the executive directors that might be listening to this in their spare time, right? <laughs> yes, there's, there's experience that comes with age and all of these things, but mm-hmm. don't shut down your applicants that are on the younger side because they can yes. be really a great asset to your team. So, and Noelle is living proof of that. (laughs) Well, thank you. Sorry, moving past that. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your background and why you became passionate about this work. Yeah, so like I had kind of alluded to, even when I was in high school, it was always something that was on my mind. It's something I grew up, well, I'll backtrack a bit. I'm the youngest of five, Mm -hmm. and uh, all of my older siblings are decades older than me, and so I was you know, my mom was later in life when she had me. And so I was around a lot of grown up conversations at a very young age. I was also very mature for my age. So it was mm-hmm. a kind of a combination kind of, of the two. Soul, would you say? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the common theme that I, I hear a lot from my family about myself. I learned a lot about, you know, different issues and such. And over my childhood, I learned that just about every woman in my life had a story of sexual violence or assault. Oh, wow. um, 
But then I was also given this impression that, but you're not supposed to talk about it, right? So right. I learned about it after maybe a family get-together and, you know, um, a female family member's had a couple glasses of wine and is getting a little tearful and is talking about their experiences. And it's like, whoa, why, why is this the only time that you feel comfortable chatting about it? And mm. so I naturally did some research. <laughs> Everyone knows me for like my PowerPoints and, and things I love to put together. And so if there was a problem that I couldn't really understand why no one wanted to talk about it, I did a lot of research about it then. Mm. And I was very adamant that I don't, I couldn't wrap my head around why we wouldn't talk about something that's affecting everyone. Right. It's just, I couldn't, couldn't conceptualize it. And so I was always very passionate about it, always following different like state coalitions that were really popular on social media, following the NSVRC or the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. And I always had a dream of helping people. And so I wanted to pair that with sexual violence prevention response. And so in, when I was 16, we had a little presentation where you could talk about any issue. And so I decided to talk about rape culture and campus sexual assaults. Wow. Um, and I at used, 16. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so I sat down with my, one of my older sisters at the time who had experienced um, some things in college and asked if I could use her story to open up the presentation. And I made my whole class cry. <laughs> mm. And so it's always been a passion of mine. I always saw myself working in higher education. Mm. And so it's actually the bulk of where I applied to when I was getting ready to graduate. Um, was working in like Title IX offices, things like that, and I got oh. a lot of rejections. Okay, okay. Uh, a lot. Hence why I became a nanny for a little bit, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. all the other oddsmen's jobs. But um, yeah, it's just always. I can't imagine doing anything else. I, mm-hmm. I, it's just always been the one that's been at the forefront. It was just very clear that this is the field that you're meant to work in. Well, unfortunate for us, you didn't get hired in those uh, <laughs> higher education roles. <laughs> Talk a little bit about where you feel REACH is going. Like with the expansion that's happening, it's very exciting. Where do you think like we could be in five, ten years? Yeah, that's a great question. I see really big things in REACH's future. It's something that's so exciting to see because even as a volunteer, I knew there was something so special here, but it wasn't... It wasn't known to the community. No one really knew what REACH was. When I'd say I'm a REACH volunteer, no one had any idea what I was talking about or what I did. And so I really see in these next five, ten years, people finally knowing who REACH is in the same way that we all know who Christine Ann is and what they do, and we all know who Harbor House is and what they do, to bring REACH that same level of visibility. So if anyone's telling any kind of story of sexual abuse, sexual assault, which is often... yes that people in the community know exactly which name to bring up first in terms of here's a great nonprofit that can help help you in a wide array of things when you're talking about healing from what happened to you. I think another really big piece in these next few years is expanding our prevention program. Mm. Talking to a lot of Calumet County administrators, for example, it's a very rural county. There's not a lot of resources there. There are many children who have never received any prevention education in sexual assault programming. And so being able to one day say we're in every single school across three counties would be a dream. Um, Mm. And it's definitely something we're working towards. So unfortunately, nothing we can do overnight. Right. Um, But continuing to build those relationships so that every child across our tri-county area is receiving quality prevention education about sexual assault and abuse. I already think it's so inspiring to see how different generations handle sexual assault. Um, Talk about that. With that caseload, it was very interesting because, like I said, it was paired with volunteer coordinator. So I had some youth cases, so it was a youth and teen advocate, the only one at that time, too. We only had one. Wow. Um, 
and no pressure. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. <laughs> and then volunteer coordinator. So if a volunteer got a call, oftentimes I'd be that first point of contact with the survivor after a after hours staying call and then figure out whether or not it fits within my caseload or another advocates. But oftentimes I was getting adult cases and youth cases, even as a right. youth and teen. And the response and the way that they dealt with sexual assault across the generations is just so crazy to me. I mean, I something you're really trained in as an advocate is within that first session to affirm and empower the survivor to know it's not your fault. Right. You're probably feeling some self-blame or you know, thinking, what could I have done better? Maybe I shouldn't have been drinking this or that. And really addressing that from that first point of contact and saying it's not your fault. <laughs> and I would say that to a lot of uh, like tween survivors, for example, and they'd be like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, duh, right? Yeah. yeah, and I was like, oh, okay. I mean, good. That's great. That's, That's awesome. Yes, exactly. Whereas, you know, I'd have adult, even like 20-somethings or 40-somethings, I'd have to tell them that you know, they're not making it up, that it was, in fact, assault. Right. Um, and so just seeing that generational difference, it's really cool to see. I know we talk a lot about harmful effects of social media, which I'm definitely not saying it's a golden ticket by any means, mm. but I think it definitely has a role to play in in kiddos learning at a younger age that they do have some autonomy and that sexual abuse isn't doesn't have to be this nasty secret that you keep to yourself. I have a question. Part of like the heartbeat of reach is believing people when they mm-hmm. disclose abuse and, and uh, assault, right? What happens if there's reason to think that the truth is not being told? Has that ever come into play? Or is it just that's not our field? We stay out of that? Because you do hear from time to time that there are false accusations made and things mm-hmm. like that. Does that ever come into play? Has it ever yeah. come into play? No, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah. Typically, like in a typical case, it's not our job to mm-hmm. determine whether or not a crime has occurred. Like that's, we leave that in the police's hands. Our job is to affirm the survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there are some cases, especially in cases of extreme mental health concerns, right. um, where delusions can be had, especially when, if someone has been like abused in childhood mm-hmm. and then has a, extreme mental health concerns come out of that and then has that assault reoccur in their heads in adulthood. I have seen they cases truly like that. that, that yes. happened again. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And there's a certain case that will always stick with me. We were in the same room and a police officer was called and it was very clear very early on that it was really just a case of really severe mental health. Mm. Um, and <laughs> as an advocate, you know, I, my guard goes up a little bit of, okay, how's this police officer going to handle this? Are they going to understand how to handle this in a trauma-informed way? Um, sometimes you just don't know the, the, the level of, of comfortability right. that a certain offer is going to officer is going to have with that but they handled it beautifully Mm. um and was just you know i believe that this is what you believe you experienced and that you are feeling these sensations and that you are feeling unsafe i 100 percent believe but i have to prove that this happened to a jury in order for me to do my job right and unfortunately i don't think i can do that but that's not to say i don't believe that this is what you are experiencing whether in your head or or out in the world, but I won't be able to prove this to a jury and really walk the survivor through that process mm. so that they still felt validated, they still felt heard and seen, but also understood that that a, a case was not going to continue on. 
Um, and and that, you witnessed this yes. happen and play out. Yes. Wow. It took some coaxing, some talking to make sure that they understood that they weren't just being shut down just to be shut down, that this was just unfortunately how our justice system works as well is that you know there has to be cold hard facts in order for them to do anything about it and at the end of the day the survivor was very like calm by the end of the the interaction and understood why that the police officer was not going to be able to help going forward but that reach still could help Um, because clearly there was an assault at some point in time that was leading to these these delusions and and got them set up with therapy services um so it ended up being a really positive interaction even if there wasn't necessarily a recent assault that needed the criminal justice's intervention wow so thank you for sharing that example that was (laughs) like a perfect example i mean obviously that's not the norm that is like definitely an exception yes um but i just was curious about that i would think some listeners might be curious too so can you talk a little bit about being a volunteer and why people should consider volunteering yeah absolutely I miss being able to do that all the time as the volunteer coordinator because I am really passionate about it. I really value my time that I had as a volunteer, as a REACH volunteer. There's something so empowering about knowing that if that phone rings, you're going to be able to show up and give a survivor what they need in that moment. It can be terrifying for sure. Like that first call, I was shaking in my boots um, because... I was having a little bit of imposter syndrome myself of my age, of my experience, of what do I know about going in there? But showing up, you know, you're not sure what you're gonna walk into. There's gonna be the SANE nurse there. There's probably gonna be a police officer there, probably like 60% of the time, and then the survivor and any family members um, that accompany them. But unfortunately, more often than not, that survivor has no one coming with them. Right. Because they're not ready to tell someone what happened to them to Mm -hmm. get that support. So that support system is you. Right. And there's something so human about the whole interaction. Is what I really, like, that's what leaves the biggest impression is just, like, human to human, I see your pain. I see that you are going through a really hard time right now, and I'm honoring that, and I understand that, this is not going to be an easy process, but we're here to do anything we can to make it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Can we go grab you a, a drink, some water? Can we go grab some food from the cafeteria? Um, do you need to talk about the experience and, and talk about any feelings that are coming up? Do you want to talk about anything else? We can talk about movies. We can talk right. about this dumb reality show we just watched last week. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's, it's really putting, telling the survivor, I'm here for you. Here are some ways I can be here for you. Mm-hmm. But I am also willing to just do what's needed to make this a little bit better. Yeah. And that's what I think is like the coolest experience of it all is you get to know a person. It's just person to person at the end of the day. Of course, you're their advocate. They're the survivor. But just seeing their humanity and knowing that I'm just here to be a human. I'm not here to be super technical and give you an exam. I'm not here to be the police officer and poke and prod repetitive questions, which I understand that's their job. Right, right, right. Both, both ways, I understand. But our job is to just to be a human there for you and be there to support that survivor. Do you feel the hospital, the nurses, and the police are grateful that your advocates are there? Do they, do they see the value added in that? Yeah, absolutely. When I was volunteer coordinator, I loved how well both the SANE coordinators at Aurora Oshkosh Um, and Theta Care in Appleton are with our organization. They're so appreciative. They're quick to communicate if there's any problems um, with a certain call or maybe something didn't go so well. Not 
and you know, not in a way to like blame or shame, but hey, here's what happened. Here's what we could probably do better. But yeah, constant gratitude from from both hospitals. And so that's it's always really great to have because being an advocate is often a pretty thankless job. Right. So it's it's really nice to have that connection. Um, same with a, a lot of police officers, you know, having someone there to just be there for emotional support makes their job easier as well. Right, I would imagine. Um, because there is so many preconceived notions with police officers for good reason, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have had negative experiences with police officers and so having a person there to be that buffer has really helped those processes especially when we talk about the initial report which can be quite lengthy you know police are asking a lot of follow-up questions it can feel very re-traumatizing for that survivor and with good reason and so having an advocate there to kind of cushion that blow to make sure you're taking breaks to make sure that the survivor feels like they still have autonomy as much as possible definitely feel that gratitude um, from from both processes, which is which is nice to see. Yeah, I mean, because really you're acting as a team, mm-hmm. a team of support, and you all have different roles to play. So that's that's cool yes. that they they see the value. What do you think is the greatest challenge you have in grant writing for this organization? Mm. Well, a lot of our funding is through the government, mm-hmm. um, so we have a lot of federal and state and city um, applications, um, as well as county, and so. With that comes a lot of jumping through hoops, a lot of reporting, a lot of constant maintenance and management of those funds, and a lot of rules and protocols to follow to make sure that reach is up to par and up to standard, because standards are changing as well. So it's just in a webinar talking about how changing protocols and making sure that we're up to date so we can continue to receive funds. So it's a constant upkeep, Mm -hmm. which definitely is takes a lot of my time. Mm -hmm. I think... With grant writing and with donor stewardship as a whole, when we're talking about raising funds for REACH, it's not always the easiest sell, because like I've mentioned, it's not something people want to talk about. Right. Um, it's not like we're an animal shelter where we can post cute puppy photos right. and right. be like, fund, fund this puppy surgery. Everyone wants to jump on, right? right? Um, or even like mental health more broadly. Everyone cares about, you know, suicide risk and things like that. Maybe they don't want to talk about it, but it's just like a, okay, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. take here's five bucks yeah. a month, no problem. <laughs> but when we get into sexual assaults, um, a lot of folks feel like if they're posting about us or if they're sharing us, that's like outing themselves as a survivor or that at least that sexual violence is something that's close to home for them, mm-hmm. which can feel very vulnerable. And even when we're tabling out at outreach events, uh, I, it's hard not to notice that people are very quick to go to booths other than our own once they know what right. REACH does. Right. <laughs> or they ask, oh, what's REACH? And we're like, oh, we're a sexual assault service provider. And they slowly back away. Yeah, like, oh, <laughs> yes. <have> <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's because it's a little bit of a taboo topic. Right. Thankfully, with you know the Me Too movement, mm. um, which happened you know just before I came into my role, that's subsided a little bit. It's not quite as extreme as it was in the decades past, but it's it's still a struggle for sure to get people to want to talk about it or or to want to fund it because also like an interesting niche organization. Some funding categories are very specific to basic needs assistance. You know, right. getting food on the table, getting people's bills paid, mental health, which people's first gut reaction is depression, anxiety, and don't often think about trauma, um, even though that we do fall into that bucket. So sometimes we have to justify ourselves as Mm -hmm. for uh, like a right to be in that space. Yeah. Why should people support REACH? Our individual donors are pretty amazing. I mean, we have some who have been giving for generations. 
uh, actually a few, um, where you know their parents gave and their parents' parents gave. Um, and so they continue to give back to the organization. And I think that's that's really cool to see because they also see our, our evolution as an organization. But I mean, a lot of folks, whether or not sexual assault is close to their heart or or someone they know it's close to their heart. I mean, they can just see the passion that's seeping out of these walls. If they come in for a presentation or for a tour of our facilities, it's just so apparent that everyone here loves what they do and that they're really, really passionate about it. So I think that's a main driver is just knowing that there's so many good people here. And you know, why support reach above, you know, what you're probably hearing in other episodes and what I've talked about today. I think something that's really cool about our organization is our, our recommitment to anti-racism um, that started in the fall of 2020 and everything that's transpired since then. Um, you know, growing our culturally responsive programming, having regular meetings as all staff and as white and BIPOC affinity groups, updating our vision, mission, values to reflect these values, um, and really ingraining it in the work that we do. Um, it's something I've always wanted within a workplace and it was one of the first things I mentioned to Kristen when she came on board mm. is that you know we need to do more yeah we had a lot of like front-facing materials you know we had our Black Lives Matter sign out front in front of our sign but I felt like we weren't doing the work within our own walls mm. and so to see that transform our organization over the last two years where people feel more comfortable showing up as their full selves right. is really amazing to see it really is because even though nonprofit has this nice little bubble, there's still a lot of work to do. Um, yes. There is a lot of white supremacy in the roots of nonprofits and in the roots of even the sexual anti-sexual violence movement. And so, Could you talk about that a bit? <laughs> I'm curious. Some other yeah. Can you talk to that? Yeah. Can you speak to that? Um, so I wouldn't call myself an expert by any right. means. And I would definitely like even in the notes of this, if we could link some articles, Absolutely. that would be wonderful. Yes of some really great black creators who've talked about anti-blackness and racism in the sexual violence movement. But it's, you know, it's unfortunately really common. Um, it's everywhere, even in our, our so to speak, nonprofit bubbles. Mm -hmm. This idea of white saviorism mm -hmm. and that, you know, a lot of majority of nonprofits are white led. Bringing in other um, folks who are not white seems great on its face at first for these white led nonprofits. But then the second that person who's not white tends to suggest changes or point out some structural issues that are reinforcing racism, mm -hmm. they are quickly mm -hmm. then shut down and shut out of an organization. And this is a pattern that's been observed across our nation, across all the nonprofits, um, all nonprofit spaces. And unfortunately, that includes the anti-sexual violence movement. Okay, so you'll provide us with some of those yes. links. Yes. And we'll provide those out there. Yes. As a white woman, I want to credit black creators who have done a lot of the legwork already with these resources. And I definitely don't want to misquote any of them. Of course, um, of course. But I've, I've learned so much about anti-racism and, um, unfortunately, the anti-blackness that exists within these spaces. Yeah. What is one of the best ways that nonprofits can walk the walk and not just talk the talk? You touched mm. on this a little bit, but what are like some active steps that they can take mm -hmm. to address the, these things? Yeah. I would say definitely hire an anti-racism consultant and not just any anti-racism consultant. There are a lot of them out there and some programs and curriculums have been very tailored to that kind of corporate check-a-box type curriculum. Um, and if you really want to 
walk the walk, so to speak, please hire someone who's willing to push you a little bit, Mm -hmm. who's willing to make you a little bit uncomfortable, Um, especially if you are white. DEI programming is supposed to make you uncomfortable because we've lived such a life of comfort and not having to think about our race and Mm -hmm. the advantages that come with it. So you have to get uncomfortable network. If you're leaving a DEI, your first DEI session, for example, and feeling uplifted and like, oh yeah, I'm so great. I don't think it's the right <laughs> one. <laughs> yes, yes. Which I know no one wants to hear that. No one wants to get uncomfortable, but you have to. It's it's the first step. You know, you have to acknowledge that you're, you know, implicitly or explicitly upholding the system of white supremacy across, you know, your personal life, your professional life, and then figuring out, okay, how do I tease myself out of that matrix? How do I learn to be anti-racist, not just not racist? Exactly. And so don't do it on your own because you need help. (laughs) Where, you know, especially if you were raised in a predominantly white society, if you are white, you're never taught to examine your own race. And typically, you probably weren't even raised around people who didn't look like you. And so your threshold for understanding whiteness and understanding white supremacy is very low. <laughs> and also, you shouldn't be depending on people who you know of color to mm. explain it to you or to like do that work for you, yes. right? And that, hence That's the... something I've heard you talk about, <laughs> and I think it's important yeah. to note that. Yeah, hence the hiring part. So pay them, yeah. pay them well. <laughs> yes, yeah. To come in and help transform the organization. Like we work with the Elevate Collective, um, specifically Dorothy with Elevate Collective, and she has really done a lot of the work in helping reach get to this better place. She challenges us. She'll make us laugh. Sometimes she'll make some folks cry, but that's okay. It's okay. You move through that and you come on the other side, a better organization where everyone on staff feels like they understand each other, not just on a professional level, but understand each other's backgrounds and can respect and value them. Mm. Is there any advice you can give to nonprofits out there that are struggling with finding the right grants or finding the right funding now that you've Mm -hmm. kind of lived in that space and you're good at it (laughs) what's some advice you could give to nonprofits that are doing great work but they're just struggling to find the funding yeah that's a great question i think definitely find some allies in the work so i for example we are funded by united way fox cities and ashtar united way they've been really helpful in understanding some other grant opportunities. Same with the Oshkosh Area Community Foundation and Community Foundation for the Fox Valley region. They have a lot of local connections. And so it's been on more than one occasion where we've gone up to one of these funding bodies and said, hey, we've got this project. We know we're maxed out in funds we've requested from you. Do you know someone who'd have an interest or a passion in this specific programming? And they can connect me and and send me in the right place. There's tons of listservs out there. They can get a little overwhelming. So don't feel like you need to be on every single listserv. Um, So whether that ally is another funding body that's really well connected in your area, or even a larger nonprofit who's willing to help another nonprofit shine. Not everyone's like that. Sometimes people feel very siloed. Um, There's a very big scarcity mindset within the nonprofit funding community. Rightfully so, unfortunately, because you know we're all fighting to make sure our people are paid and paid well. But I think something that's come out more recently because of the pandemic and other things is more collaboration across nonprofits. Mm. And so folks who were small and then are, are no longer such small nonprofits and have learned success, some want to share and want to help and want to give that leg up to other nonprofits. It's something that 
I've done. I've reached out to large nonprofits or people with more established and robust grant writing protocols. And I've also helped out nonprofits smaller than ours to either write grants, review grants, or, or research new opportunities. So there's definitely folks out there who want to help. So, and I just have to say, I love that that kind of came out of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. That was like a positive that came out of yes. that, that collaboration spirit and everything. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for yeah. taking the time. Thank you so much. Every 73 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. You are not alone. Reach Counseling is here to help, and we're expanding our reach. Since 1976, we have offered our services throughout Winnebago County. We are pleased to now offer our services in Outagamie and Calumet counties as well. REACH Counseling is a sexual assault service provider for children and adults that offers culturally responsive outreach, prevention education, victim advocacy, trauma counseling, and sex offender treatment. As an anti-violence agency, we strive to heal lives and transform communities. Call our 24-7 helpline anytime at 920-722-8150. For more information, visit us at reachcounseling.com.